Standing back to back, the mighty ranger Minsk dispatches a menacing kobold with a final swing of his sword, while Dinahir the wizard roasts a small group of the vicious little creatures with magic fire. As the last of the kobolds falls, Minsk shouts, Jahira, I require healing, lest my hamster become an orphan. The druid sighs and places her hands on Minsk, chanting the words to a curative spell. Meanwhile, the clever thief Imowen searches the bodies of the recently departed kobolds, finding a few coins and some magic arrows. His wounds healed, Minsk shoulders his hefty blade and strides boldly into further depths of the dark cavern. But he halts as he hears a deep, otherworldly voice utter this command. You must gather your party before venturing forth. Greetings, everyone, and especially fans of 20-year-old isometric RPGs, and welcome to another episode of Dungeons and Decisions, a Displaced Beast production. On this show, a group of guys with 30-plus years of experience of playing role-playing games together discusses the context of notable choices made while playing Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, all to help you, the audience, discover the path of maximum fun. Well, we've got a lot to talk, to talk about today, but first, let's meet those guys. All right, so I'm Alan Barris, the forever DM and sometimes dwarf. I'm Chad Freitag, um, just kind of more of the uh, mid-maxer and uh, always the player. I'm Mike, I'm the anti-hero, and much more um, handsome than Chad. <laughs> I'm over here. <laughs> <laughs> Not my screen, you're down there. <laughs> and uh, here we go. So in today's episode, we are going to address the construction of an adventuring party. Uh, there are a lot of metaphorical hamsters running around in this particular ranger's pocket, uh, such as historical expectations, uh, perfect party optimization, and the individualism and role-playing. But let's start out with my specialty, framing the issue in very broad strokes. <laughs> Towards that purpose, here are four points to consider as we move to a more nuanced discussion. Point number one, teamwork is a large component of D&D. Uh, players must work together to overcome obstacles and to solve problems. In the words of Helen Keller, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. Point number two, the traditional hazards of D&D adventures require skills and abilities that are unique to particular character classes, leading to the common perception that a complete set of these skills uh, and the abilities must be represented in an adventuring party. It's not necessarily a bad idea, but it can, uh, if it's taken too far, it can lead to uh, what I call perfect party syndrome, which is something that I unfortunately am guilty of myself, probably because I've played way too many games of Icewind Dale, created a party, played for like two hours, scrapped that party, started over again. <laughs> which is, you know, probably something I should see a therapist about. Uh, point number three, the D&D character, however, is a creative expression of the player and should fulfill to the highest extent possible that individual players role-playing expectations and or needs. And that brings us finally to point number four. Uh, an imbalance of this team versus individual issue can create a number of different problems, uh, like a party that can't work together and meet the challenges that a dungeon master provides, 
uh, or the classic, I got stuck with the cleric issue where one player gets pressured into a, a character they don't want to play for the sake of the team or a problem that I like to call the shadow run dilemma, uh, which is uh, basically when the games become more centered on the individual roles rather than the characters. And basically you have a game that's really like four different games with every player kind of taking over for a while. Uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about Shadowrun more in future episodes. Um, and uh, we have a great Shadowrun story for lead in. But uh, today we're gonna focus on some other things. and. To talk about the history of party composition, how it's played out in uh, every edition of the game so far, including fifth edition, uh, Al is going to take over. So take it away, Al. All right, so let's talk about the history of party role composition. So it turns out that in the original days of D&D, the various character classes uh, put together would create a balanced party. So your character role, as long as you had four people playing and you had everybody playing a different class, you would get a balanced party by default. Now, there are some ways that you could still screw it up, but for the most part, that's how things work. So uh, just to review our original four uh, character roles, we had the fighter, who of course uh, was a, special, a specialist in um, fighting and also in damage absorption. Uh, this is what video game players call the tank. This is somebody who uh, will be out in the front rank and take damage and keep the squishier members of the party away from harm. Then there's the thief who is a specialist in skills, mostly lock picking, stealth, and trap detection and also in the occasional dealing of a substantial amount of damage through backstabbing, usually that you would have to benefit from by working with a uh, bigger group. Uh, you would have to coordinate with the fighter or maybe sometimes the cleric in order to get that backstabbing bonus. Then the cleric, uh, who specialized in healing and support and utility, and then finally, the magic user, who specialized in big damage and support and utility, depending on the circumstances, but mostly big damage. So this got complicated a little bit with the demi-human classes. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with how original D&D did things, it was assumed that everybody was human. Uh, everybody who was playing one of the main classes was going to be some flavor of human, whereas the demi-humans the dwarf, the elf, and the halfling were all their own classes. You could not be a dwarf fighter. You were a dwarf. So the dwarf was mostly a fighter. Uh, he had slightly better con saves, and I think that was pretty much it. The elf was a cross between a fighter and a magic user. You couldn't quite fight as well as the fighter. You couldn't quite cast as well as the wizard, but you could do both. Uh, that was the origination of the uh, of what uh, people were, uh, sometimes refer to as a gish, the idea that it's a uh, the fighter and caster. And then finally, the halfling, who was mostly a thief, they had hiding as a skill, and a ranged fighter, but they didn't have the same range of skills that the thief would. So that said, how the demi-humans fit into this pattern was sometimes kind of difficult to figure out because the, the dwarf, okay, mostly fighter, but how does the elf fit in, for example? Now, this is where we start getting the idea of the fifth man. That is the idea that a party 
uh, properly balanced might end up with five members rather than just four. And that fifth person could be a demi-human uh, playing the Chewbacca role and going along with the other group of humans. Uh, now that said, in AD&D, otherwise known as first edition, the racial classes were eliminated. So we got the uh, race and class as independent choices as any of one who has played later editions of D&D is familiar with. So this complicated the original class structure to a certain extent by adding a few other options like the barbarian, the bard, and the monk, who didn't quite fit into the four class pattern all the time. And now a barbarian was a pretty good swap out for a fighter. They pretty much do the same thing. Whereas um, the bard and the monk were their own kind of special animals. They didn't fit into that structure of that four part group. So chances are, again, we were always thinking of a group as either a five-person group, or it had to be a balancing act in, in motion. We had to figure out how to actually play that group to its best abilities. Now, second edition changed the way that the uh, original roles worked. Uh, they cut everything back down to f uh, warrior, wizard, priest, and rogue. So everything had to fit into those categories. So a bard, for example, which was its own class, now became a subset of the rogue. Uh, the paladin, which had been its own class, uh, a combination of uh, healer and fighter, uh, was now uh, classed under fighter and, or, or, or warrior and so forth. And if you didn't fit into this four-part structure, well, it sucks to be you. Goodbye, monk. You're not going to show up until the complete psychic years after the other books come out. So second edition introduces these, uh, also introduces the idea of custom class characters, which we actually based a whole campaign on, although uh, it never quite got finished and it got derailed by other good campaign ideas. We'll talk more about those guys later. Now, custom class characters were really difficult to slot into the traditional party rules, but the game really didn't intend them to be main character choices. They were just intended to be a little bit of flavor on the side. They also were not intended the way we used them, which was to sort of create a unique character. They were supposed to be designed to create like a explorer class that then multiple other people could belong to or something like that. So third edition returns to the familiar assortment of classes with no main defined roles. So this, we go right back to first edition where the barbarian and the bard and the monk are all individual classes and they all have slightly different roles. And uh, things got very complicated with the addition of prestige classes. Now the tricky part of prestige classes was that there was no character class requirement to get into a prestige class. So a sorcerer and a wizard and a cleric could all eventually qualify for the same prestige class, as could some of the other uh, less likely options. They just have to wait till a higher level. So this could get very confusing because you might have started off as a nice helpful healer but your healing ability might stall because you decided that you wanted to be a true necromancer instead, and you might have a bunch of 
of undead handling abilities instead that had nothing to do with your original class role. So third edition, you really needed to know your character and you really needed to know who you were playing with and you needed to observe how these characters would act and interact uh, with their abilities. So fourth edition, the hated edition. Now, fourth edition did have some good ideas in it. And I actually hate to admit it because, again, as will be an ongoing theme, I both love and hate fourth edition. I liked a lot of elements of it, but I can't get over my dislike for some elements of it, too. And uh, it almost killed D&D for me, actually. I was uh, considering not playing fifth edition as a result. Did we just call this the ex-girlfriend edition of D&D yes, for you, Al? I cannot get over fourth edition. So let's go I back. I, needed, I thought I needed therapy for my perfect party syndrome. <laughs> so let's go back to my, the source of my therapy, my bitter ex-girlfriend fourth edition. So uh, the fourth edition class was or a party was divided into party roles. And these party roles, as many of the critics of fourth edition, I think correctly pointed out, this was an attempt to make D&D like, play more like a video game and to give a very quick understanding to players about what role their, party, their, their character was supposed to play. So the party roles roughly correspond to the original classes, but they didn't entirely, which is another source of frustration to a lot of longtime players. So the first role was the striker. Now this was the damage dealer in the group. And traditionally this was associated with the thief. Now you'll notice that when we talked about first edition, uh, or actually, sorry, original D&D, I mentioned the thief's backstabbing ability. Well, the, that became the core of the thief class or the thief, uh, uh, or the rogue class in fourth edition. It was the ability to put out a lot of damage with your backstabbing. Uh, the ranger, if I remember right, got reclassified as a striker, putting out a lot of damage with ranged weapons and so forth. Then the defender was the damage taker. That's your old steady fighter, that's your, that's your tank. Then the controller, now, the controller was the wizard, and this is why a lot of people hated 4th edition, because the wizard was fundamentally unsatisfying to play. You were a battlefield controller. You denied zones of the, of the battlefield to your enemy, which is not nearly as cool as killing a whole bunch of things with a lightning bolt or a fireball. Uh, you still had fireball, but it was kind of lame and kind of nerfed, so it did not work as well and it denied a lot of those wizard players their desire to roll a big fistful of dice. Then the leader. Now the leader was associated with the cleric. Also the bard ended up getting uh, classified under that later on. So the leader was a buffer and a healer. They also introduced a, a, a class that unfortunately they cut for fifth edition which was the warlord which was a uh, more a combination of sort of a fighter and cleric uh, character. So a lot of people hated the video game-like nature of this division, but I will point out to you that this made adding a new character class to your group really easy, which was very important 
because fourth edition added a lot of character classes. For those of you who have been complaining about the lack of what they uh, traditionally called splat books for fourth for fifth edition, fourth edition went the other route. They had books for everything. They had they got up to three different players' handbooks, three monster manuals. They had uh, guides for everything. They just introduced a lot of of new character options, and it was sometimes very hard to keep up with them. So imagine you just have a new guy join your group, and uh, that new player says uh, that he's playing an Avenger. Well, in any other edition of D&D, everyone would just kind of stare at him and wonder, well, what the hell does that do? So in fourth edition, we would say, oh, that's a divine power source version of a striker. So then it would be like, okay, well run over behind the fighter and kill that thing we're fighting and be careful because you can't take as much damage as that fighter. Everybody would know basically how your class was supposed to operate in a fight. The other problem with fourth edition is that everything was the fight. That all of the characters were balanced out with the idea that you're going to be equally useful to combat, which is not the case in all in any of the other editions of D&D. All right, so that said, now, 5th edition. So the structure of 4th edition was totally thrown out, and now we're back to something very close to 3rd edition, where we have, uh, we eliminated prestige classes, but we added these uh, subclasses and also backgrounds. So uh, the key to party balance is understanding how the classes work, yes, but you also have to understand how the backgrounds and the subclasses work too. So for example, you might have a divine soul sorcerer who is a fairly talented healer instead of a direct damage dealer. And that sorcerer would need to hang on to their spell slots for healing the party. Or you might have a fighter with a criminal background who might be really competent at stealth and, and lockpicking. All right, so that brings us up to the present. And now I will move us over to Chad. Yay! All right. Welcome to Chatting with Chad. I'm Chad. Let's chat. Uh, I've covered a lot of the stuff that I was going to cover, so we're good. No, uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk about optimizing our party. Uh, as Al mentioned, at the beginning of D&D, there were four classes. We disregard the dwarf and the elf, and that was the fighter, the thief, the mage, and the cleric. Uh, as D&D evolved into later editions, we started seeing more subclasses, uh, more classes, more kits, more prestige things. Uh, and this just started kind of blending a lot of the multiple classes that you had together. So now, if we had a fighter that could cast magic, uh, say the Eldritch Knight, uh, you know, he could do some spells in, in the middle of battle. It wasn't so much, I'm going to hit this thing, I'm going to hit him with a spell and this thing. <laughs> uh, or for thieves, uh, again, we talked about how they kind of stayed in the background. Uh, maybe shooting their bow from, from the back row. But now you can be a shadow assassin and kind of jump out of the shadows, be in the middle of the fighting, and pretty much just stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the fighters. Uh, instead of having the hit points, they have kind of the armor class or the dodge ability. Um, so now that your characters are representing multiple classes and, and they're doing actually them, doing them very well, uh, you see that in fifth, no one's going to be stuck being the cleric because you need a healer. Um, Pretty much any class is going to have some kind of access to healing. Maybe it's an ability, maybe it's a spell. Uh, they all have short and long rests uh, so that you can kind of do healing. And then, of course, you can always buy healing potions if you find that your cleric 
you know, would rather sacrifice his healing ability to control undead instead. Um, so optimizing is kind of no longer about what specific classes that we need to have, but what roles we need to fulfill. And then also, as Al had mentioned earlier, we're looking at kind of using that video game terminology that kind of came out of RPG games, uh, like tank, the striker, the healer, uh, DPS, which is damage per second, AOE, area of effect spells, utility, crowd, all these things. Um, so what we want to do is we want to kind of get our, our group that kind of can cover all our bases in roles. So let's narrow it down to about four categories. We're going to have the tank, which is kind of a uh, Somebody he either can take a lot of damage because he's got a lot of hit points or a very good armor class so he can not take any damage or something that can kind of engage a lot of combatants at once so he can kind of act as protection from the people in the back so they don't have to waste a lot of their skill points or abilities in being able to protect themselves. They can focus on their role. Um, your second one is your healer. That's pretty much your cleric, uh, but it could be a druid druid or it could be some kind of other buff spells or just magic abilities uh and then you had your damager uh dps again the thief is a great one uh for his backstabbing but then you also have some kind of mage classes that when they get high level they can do one big major spell on one creature or a big area of effect spell that can take care of a lot of creatures uh something that can kind of maximize their ability while only a fighter can take care of one guy and then you had your support and utility roles uh a lot of these Wow, any, pretty much any of your characters can do some kind of support utility. Uh, again, I'm going back to mages. You can cast a web spell to kind of disable a lot of characters so you can focus on them one at a time. Um, or our cleric giving buffs or debuffs uh, that give advantages to the characters fighting or disadvantages to the foes that you're fighting. Uh, outside of combat, they can kind of grease the story along and give it more flavor. Um, so as roles for optimizing our party, uh, for tank, I think I've covered some of this. We want to kind of distract the enemy uh, from the rest of the party as long as possible. And I kind of narrow this into the category of don't die. You got two categories. <laughs> really, the only roles you want to fill is don't die and kill everyone else. Um, anything that kind of, yeah, it's very complicated. It's very Nietzsche. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what doesn't kill you gives you experience and makes you higher level. Um, well, thank you. you. Want to basically engage everybody, uh, take the damage, and then let everyone else kind of kill it. I mean, usually the fighters, tanks are actually pretty good killers themselves. Uh, you also want your a lot of damage dealing abilities that can kill them instantly before they can hurt you, or like I said, web control or teleport them away or charm them. All these things don't get hurt. Kill them instead. Um, so really, you kind of want to look at being able to anticipate different scenarios and have somebody that can kind of fulfill that role or jump into that role as they need to. Um, one thing uh, you can look at also, when you're playing a video game, you can kind of take advantage of some AI scripts that, you know, oh, I can send the biggest guy in there. They'll only fight him. These guys can do whatever the hell they want. Uh, you can kind of do this the same with your DM too. I'm looking at you, Al. <laughs> The DM probably won't cheat for you, but if you decide you want to make four squishy first-level mages, he's probably not going to try and kill you. He's going to probably try and work with you, tell you a story, tell a story, and you know, unless you really are going to do something <laughs> like ninja kick the leader while all, like twenty bows and arrows are are pointed at you, you know, he's probably not going to try and kill. That you. was a very viable strategy. 
<laughs> I rolled bad. <laughs> Poor life. Good callback. Good callback to episode one. <laughs> so one of the ways to optimizing your party is knowing your DM. Uh, does he do a lot of long and short rests, uh, or is each session a marathon slog with no breaks? So do you Dad, have a- is this gaming the game master? Is oh, that what this section is? This is called the optimizing your party. <laughs> But a lot of it is involving kind of questions and um, what what role do I want to play and how is that going to fulfill in a normal campaign? And you, and you really can't know that unless you know your DM. Um, and a lot of this is kind of evolution in progress as you play, uh, which you know I'll go into later, but I think is one of the great strengths of 5th edition is you, you can change or morph into what, whatever role you want as the game goes on. And I think we all do that and we slowly change our characters back and forth. Um, but some of the things of knowing your DM is, like I said, uh, is it going to be a lot of short or long rests? Uh, if you're a mage, uh, do you want to use up all your spells right away with like an Avon calling uh, fireball into a group of enemies? Or do you want to wait till you're at your last legs and, you know, you're about to die? This could be, your, your, you know, your Hail Mary. Um, does the DM ambush you? Does he do a lot of traps? Uh, are, are there going to be monsters behind every door? Um, so these are kind of the roles that you want to kind of think ahead of time of how can I solve this problem? Um, and one of the things of a balanced party is kind of knowing what your weaknesses are too. Um, are you all melee characters? Uh, so what are you going to do if all of a sudden you got flying creatures that are attacking you? Uh, how do, how do we defend against that? Um, if we don't have a thief, you know, do we have spells or abilities that can open locked doors? Um, Maybe it's just a high strength check or a cleric spell uh, or a mage spell. Uh, so I think the key is to anticipate uh, these things before the DM springs it on you. Uh, and let's that. So and then yeah. So really, I think optimizing the party is more about anticipating some of the roles that you have to play. I think with fifth edition, you can pretty much be any class you want. So. If you want to be a cleric class, cleric class, it's because you want to play the cleric. Uh, the cleric who doesn't heal uh, is fine. <laughs> Over to you. All right, Mike. not to be not to be uh, outdone by Chad. This is Mike for Mike's musings or Mike's amazing Ooh. musings. So let's muse. Um, so uh, playing a character that does not fall into a stereotypical role can be quite amusing and fun. Now, let me caveat this. Um, this is a more advanced technique. Um, you, you want to have uh, talked about this with your DM uh, and make sure that your fellow players are on board with it. Um, you, you can have a lot of fun, but you can also have a lot of failure. As long as everyone is willing to go along with the potential failure, um, again, with, with crisis comes opportunity. Um, it also creates a lot of great role-playing opportunities. Um, uh, to put it another way, um, uh, Picasso was originally a classical painter before he was uh, an impressionist. So I put it in other words, you need to know the rules before you can break the rules. Um, so it's really more of an advanced um, technique. It's probably not something you want to do for a beginning party. Um, or as a beginning player, but once you have a experienced DM and or experienced group of players, um, it, it, can, it can work out quite well. Um, so I think, uh, as I was thinking about it, um, there's really, I came up with 
three ways of doing this, although there's probably a lot of other alternatives. But um, the first one is basically based on your character build. Um, so, uh, so for example, um, if anybody has read the classic um, Robert E. Howard Conan novels, um, as compared to the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, where he's more or less a big beefy, you know, um, fighter type, um, in the novels, he's actually much more of a rogue type, but he happens to be a barbarian. So he's big and strong, but a lot of stealth, um, a lot of sneaking. Um, and so, so that's where you would utilize, for example, taking that, um, you know, you would rely on the racial bonuses and advantages of a barbarian, you know, in terms of your strength and constitution. Um, but if you were to utilize uh, high dexterity um, and the requisite skills, um, instead of instead of taking like a large bladed weapon, you know, great axe or something like that, if you concentrated on uh, two weapon fighting uh, on small arms like daggers, um, maybe even um, you know other more arcane stuff like um, like darts, um, so you can play against type there. Um, from a role playing standpoint, um, you can also play off of those uh, those stereotypes. Um, one character of mine um, was a dwarf character um, who aspired to be an elf um, and so had a lot of racial animus towards other dwarves and, and really idolized um, and really you know, took all the types of traditional things that you would um, associate with an elf. So that's kind of the second category where it wasn't as much the character build as the way I played the character. Um, that brought a lot of role-playing opportunities uh, to the fore. Um, the third category, um, I think, is more about place. Um, we had a campaign setting um, called Ravenloft that we played, which is a, um, you know, you think, think you're Dracula, sort of Frankenstein, Gothic horror uh, type, <clears throat> type environment. Um, very grim, very dark. Death is right around the corner. Uh, the, the build that I had for that character was was a resident, a sort of a fallen noble type, um, who was uh, the Count von Count, um, who if anybody uh, remembers that from Sesame Street was the name of the Count there. I uh, drew a little inspiration from the naming. Um, and since this was such a grim, dark environment, I decided to take another approach um, and to play a cleric who didn't heal. Um, so that cleric um, was patron deity was, was, uh, was one that didn't provide any healing spells. Um, it was more of a damage dealer. Um, and again, you know, my, so my role playing aspect there was really uh, riffing off of the environment that we were in as opposed to um, other considerations. So, so those are three, you know, uh, examples for you on ways that you can try and play uh, a character that goes against type um, for fun and frivolity. Um, and with that, I will turn it back to Mark for some group discussion. Yeah, so obviously we, we want to, you know, take a little time to process all of this. Um, but, you know, whether you're a traditionalist or an optimizer or a wacky individualist, there is always an adventuring party waiting for you to join it, right? There's room for everybody at the table. We support you in all your play styles. Um, and uh, I, I think that, you know, we mentioned some various issues. 
uh, or at least I did at the beginning of this, trying to kind of figure out how to balance all of this. And uh, since Dungeons and Dragons really is, after all, a relationship, um, it's probably a cliche to say this, but the key to any relationship is communication, right? So um, that involves communication between players and communication with your dungeon master. Uh, if you, you know, if, if your dungeon master uh, enjoys uh, kind of more action in combat, then, you know, the players should know that from the beginning so they make sure they, they have the appropriate characters, whether it's your dungeon master is more interested in a, a kind of more, you know, diplomacy campaign with more social interaction and role playing. You know, likewise, the characters should be informed so they can build um, in that direction. Uh, occasionally, uh, we. Don't... I was going to say that sounds much better than taking advantage of your DM. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we, <laughs> I may not have a catchy, you know, uh, chat with Chad, you know. Right, right. Anyways, yeah, corner. Don't forget. Said, I'm thinking about the issues. But the, we can see, you know, obvious problems if this sort of thing doesn't happen, uh, right? The, um, you know, the, the stuck with, especially with, you know, inner player communication, the stuck with the player thing is, is, is obviously a breakdown between players where they're not kind of, uh, acknowledging everyone's right to play the, the character that they want to play and not working it as, as, as a team. Or, you know, a breakdown in communication between the dungeon master and the players where, where, you know, they're basically playing two different games. I actually experienced this problem myself. Um, I was uh, starting a superhero campaign uh, using the uh, role-playing rules uh, I had prepared this adventure that I was super excited about that was going to be, you know, this classic, like, super team uh, brawl between heroes and villains out in the streets, you know, it's like the Avengers and the Masters of Evil. Um, I was stoked and ready to go, and uh, I, I get there, and, and uh, everyone who's playing rolls up these characters that are all these, like, wacko, troubled loners with, like, these oddball powers. <laughs> None of them particularly well oriented to a slugfest in the streets. And so basically, I came there ready to run like Silver Age Marvel, and they were all ready to play Vertigo. Uh, so it was a disaster, an absolute and total disaster. And it could have all been fixed if I you know, just told them beforehand, but this is, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Um, so think about that when you're making your characters or vice versa. If I'd, I'd let them make their characters first, you know, then I could have like run some kind of wacky invisibles campaign and they would have been super happy. <laughs> <laughs> so communication is key, you know, uh, do a session zero, communicate, talk about these things uh, at the beginning so that you don't have problems down the line. And Chad's point was also very good and that even if you don't do this, there are plenty of mechanisms in 5e uh, where you can fix things down the line. You know, you can, you can take feats, you know, um, like the skilled feat where you can pick up like a number of skills and, and basically make yourself uh, the rogue um, in terms of skills if you want to, uh, or the party communicator or whatever, um, if, if you, you forgot to do that. And, or you can, you know, um, you know, you get to second or third level, you can take the appropriate subclass that'll, that'll make you more uh, versatile. If you're the bard, you know, you can do the, the College of Valor to make yourself a tougher fighter. If, you know, the party needs a little beefing up, 
you know, uh, Al mentioned the, the divine soul sorcerer, uh, which, you know, you can use to kind of swap in for a healer. So there are, there are ways to, to kind of fix things if, if you start, if you don't get it all right the first time when you're starting. Uh, but once again, say, you just, oh, sorry, no, go ahead. I was going to say, it's just going to reiterate. You just got to be open and communicate about it. I was just going to dovetail on that. Don't be afraid to fail. Um, I mean, if you, as long as you've got a good party, um, you know, sometimes you won't always get it right the first time. Um, you know, worst case scenario, you can always reroll another character. Um, but you're, you're, you're spending your hard earned time on this to amuse yourself and, and your friends. Uh, and so if you've got an idea and you think it's fun and it's like, you know, I don't care if I do a lot of damage, I'm just going to be, you know, rolling, you know, down the aisle. Um, and amusing myself for hours on end, then, you know, go for it. Um, you know, uh, the, the Count um, not only didn't heal people, I think he probably uh, almost contributed to some people's death um, well, on occasion. <laughs> so, <laughs> to be um, fair, so my character died of his own poor decision-making, so that's it. That's the only defense I will utter of the count. But again, that only worked because the party was good with it. If if people had not been uh, uh, down with with you know a, a backstabbing metaphorically cleric, uh, that that uh, the count would have fallen on his face. So um, so, but again, you know, it, it's uh, sometimes a little trial and error. Um, but uh, you know, and, and even even monks can't walk up walls sometimes. You know. Not until they're high enough level. Uh, <laughs> communication. Uh, the best story I think was with communication. If we knew, had known we had, were going to have a cleric that didn't heal, you know, we could have maybe bought some healing stuff. Um, we were over at Mark's house, and we were playing, and his wife was joining in, and both Al and I, automatically knowing that Mike had a cleric, were bu buying a bunch of healing potions. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah's like, well, why are you buying healing potions? We have a cleric. And we're like, oh. <laughs> Again, you play with each other long enough, you almost don't have to commun communicate some of these things. But, uh, yeah, communication is definitely key. Uh, and, and I think fifth edition is very balanced, uh, like we talked about before. I think the only thing you really can't do is have everyone um, be the same role. Uh, again, like a... Uh, Mark's story with the superheroes. If everyone's filling the same role, you've got a lot of gaps. Uh, and, and, and no one can kind of be a, a star with their specialty because everyone's going to kind of compete to be that spokesperson or the crazy guy or, you know, all that stuff. Oh, uh, Though, I mean, we should say a couple of words. We did actually have a imbalanced campaign. We did the fighter thief campaign. That was yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, we're I, gonna talk. We're gonna talk about that more. I think in, in later okay. episodes. But I think, like, even in that case, right? If you're doing it, if you're doing a game where you're all you're all playing wizards or you're all playing rogues or whatever, like, even then there has to be a little bit of difference between those characters. Everyone's got to have their own thing, right? It's it's you can't be you know all lining up to backstab someone. Very <laughs> <laughs> much. <laughs> well, we're all flanked, so. <laughs> <sighs> so All right, uh, outside to talk, so let's let it talk. All right, so uh, the other thing it helps to know is your DM's attitude towards death and what the expectations are going to be for failure in your campaign. Uh, 
D&D has gradually drifted away from its original roots where it was pretty much the DM versus the players. And your character was probably going to die at some point, probably because you did something stupid, but that was part of the expectations. The idea was it was more of a survival game than anything else. Now, there are still games that do that. Uh, incidentally, the uh, code word for you young players who are looking for that kind of game is old school renaissance, otherwise known as OSR games. And a lot of them are based on the original pattern for D&D or Gamma World or any number of other games like that. So 5th uh, edition has actually drifted in an opposite direction where you kind of have to try to die. Uh, or you have to be really overmatched, or you have to be really stupid. There has to be some combination of factors that's going to off your character. Uh, for the most part, you're probably going to give up on a character before it gets killed. So, uh, but it, it, again, it depends on your DM. If your DM is aiming for a really high lethality game, uh, there are some rules, actually, that you can put uh, optional rules from the DMG and other optional rules that are floating around out there uh, that uh, can make the game a lot more dangerous. Uh, but, and again, if you're going to be playing in that kind of game, well, just bear in mind that party role is going to be vital. Uh, being able to play with your other characters is going to be really important or else a bunch of you are going to die. Um, in a regular game, however, I hate killing player characters. I mean, I'll just come out and admit it. I don't like doing it uh, because I spend a lot of time thinking about a campaign and trying to get stories to work with those characters. And when a character gets offed by a kobold in session three, well, that doesn't do my story any good. Now, I'm not George R. R. Martin. I don't, I, <laughs> I, 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 my world does not have random death built into it for the most part. Um, or if it does, I'm probably going to let that character get resurrected or revived. I mean, and it also turns out the healing magic's a lot easier to get, and, and uh, the magic to return your character to life is easier to get than it's been in previous editions. So, um, I mean, you just have to know, again, the style of the game and the sort of the, the expectations that the DM has going into. Well, and again, a session zero kind of setup is great for finding that information. Well, and character death can actually deepen, not, not a true death, but, because um, didn't, didn't in the custom class campaign, wasn't the whole shade thing, wasn't that uh, uh, like a, a reaction sort of to you getting death? Uh, mm -hmm. I don't remember how we worked that out. Uh, it's been a long time. But uh, I mean, a, a loss of a character can actually be really dramatic. I mean, some people really like that sort of thing. But I try, I try not to bring it up with active groups. Uh, that, bear that in mind. Uh, there are going to be times in our current D&D group where uh, things are going to get a lot more dramatic near the end of the campaign. And at that point, well, um, the uh, rules might change. But for right now, you're all pretty safe. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing. I have no taste. I like all your characters. So, uh, but later on, we'll see. Uh, I don't know if that brings up another top topic, but what about uh, a balanced party that one or two people can't show up for the meeting? 
<sighs> all right. So yeah, that's another huge thing that all DMs have to deal with. Uh, so when somebody can't make it to your session, what do you do? Uh, do you let somebody else in the group play them? Uh, because with tools like Fantasy Grounds, it's actually remarkably easy to do that. You can just give control of that player over to, or that character over to another player, and just say, hey, you're, you're playing that character tonight. Now, the problem is, of course, um, if their beloved character does something stupid that week and gets killed, well, <laughs> suddenly you are to blame for this, and it looks like you put a hit out on that character. So we try, again, I'd say in a high lethality campaign, you always, especially like, a, like an OSR type game, you never want to do that. Right. Unless you've just said right from the beginning, these are all trash characters and I don't care what happens to them. Uh, as long as you've accepted that, it's okay. Well, it's like lending out your car. You, you right. would only do that to somebody who you trust. Or um, if your yeah. car is really crappy and you don't care or, about it. So. <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings about it. I... Uh, you know, if you're right in the middle of something and the, you know, like, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for that character to suddenly disappear. Right. Right. You know, uh, you know, they take a nap on the wagon or whatever. You know, it's like you kind of, you're kind of in the situation where for continuity's sake, you kind of have to. And in that case, I would, as a DM, I would usually like take over the character, you know, to both like to keep things in continuity and keep it going, but also kind of like as a, kind of built-in safeguard to make sure that that character doesn't die. Because, yeah. hey, I know what's coming up. I'm not going to do something stupid. <laughs> so, um, but I, you know, I, if that's not necessary, right, if it's, if it's, there's a very, very, you know, easy way to kind of drop that character from action for a little while, and I say, like, fill in the blanks as necessary. You know, give the, give your player characters uh, a magic item that can, that can help them with that role or even better, like create an awesome NPC who can accompany them and, uh, and do the things that, that are necessary. A helpful um, lizard man to I, all their experience. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. I love, I love the NPC allies. Um, and uh, you know, and I, I just finished a campaign and the, um, we, we started the game and I, uh, at the very beginning of the game, and it was a, a like a the, the first game was a, a prison escape scenario kind of thing where they were they were trapped in a cell, and they didn't have a rope. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah so I tossed in an uh, an NPC rogue to help them, and it turned out to be like one of my favorite NPCs of all time. And yes, he was in fact a lizard man. Uh, so that uh, you know, there's there's ways around it. Um, once again, you know, you just have to be, you have to be thinking about it in advance and, and, and making sure that, you know, you communicate and no one's feelings get hurt. Uh, it's kind of odd that we kind of took this turn from like party kind of creation, you know, and then into like character death. <laughs> <laughs> it's just important <laughs> to know what the like, consequences of fear. Kind of weird that, that that's, that's where we went, but that's where we ended up pretty much. When you look um, at the abyss, the abyss looks back. <laughs> so, on that encouraging note, I can't think of a better place to quit for the for today. So, uh, thanks everybody uh, for listening and or watching. Uh, we, uh, as always, really enjoy doing this. Uh, so, on behalf of everyone uh, here at uh, Dungeons and Decisions, I wish you all a good evening or a good day whatever applies, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.